Hello and welcome back to the MedTalk podcast. This is episode three. Later on in the episode, we'll be talking to healthcare giant Philips about the Future Health Index and what the future of healthcare really looks like. But first of all, here's our chat. Okay, so Fliss, why don't you get us started? So, in the news um, of late, I don't know if anybody else has been keeping up to date with this, but um, there are epileptic drugs um, that are have been in use since the 70s. Sodium valproate is the chemical form, the name of it. Um, and basically, they found that it has potentially harmful effects on unborn children. That's known. They released new guidelines about that, but a survey has revealed that a lot of women of childbearing age aren't made aware of these potentially harmful effects. And um, there is now a public hearing happening um, at the European Medicines Agency in London um, about what they're going to do about this. So whether, you know, are they going to release further guidelines? How are they going to approach it? You know, they're going to look at, they're actually asking women um, for their own personal experiences. Um, they've been submitted to the EMA um, via the website um, and they're going to see how these guidelines, you know, what's happened, why haven't they worked? Why haven't people been informed of these issues? And, you know, how have all these children ended up being affected? So, we were discussing it earlier, Lou and I, and you know it's a serious issue because a lot of women who are pregnant, you know, they might not have any other option because epilepsy it could be a really serious problem for them. So they might mm. need to take this drug. So they have to really sort of weigh that up. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think cause there's two issues, isn't there? There's one that the the guidelines haven't been reaching certain mm-hmm. women, and the second one is that. <coughs> where they are reaching them, they then have a really difficult decision to make whether they take a drug that might essentially harm their baby Mm -hmm. or in some cases, if they don't take it, they could have a serious seizure and die. Yeah, yeah. So Um, it's it's not an easy one to answer. It's not necessarily known as well, because obviously it can be physical deformities or autism, you know, there are multiple things that can happen to your unborn child as well or nothing at all you know I mean it's not always the case that something bad comes of it. So has anybody mentioned any proposals for alternatives? I think at the moment it is one of the drugs that they have to use Mm. so that's why the guidance was there so the the choice is given back to the the mother or potentially you know would be mother. Yeah the Um, Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency and the MHRA uh, obviously uh, they've said to the BBC, this is like um, an exclusive BBC story, and they said that the results of the survey are important in helping us understand the effectiveness of the measures taken to date in the UK. We want to encourage all women to have access to the Valproate toolkit, which is the guidelines that were released in February, um, that we made available in February. We constantly monitor the safe use of Valproate and support this latest review by the EMA on the use in pregnancy and women of childbearing age. So, yeah, there's issues that there aren't potentially good enough alternatives mm-hmm. out there yeah. for women of childbearing age to, to take. So there's the definite risk-to-benefit ratio that has to be 
taken into consideration there but as a mum I don't know if I would be happy to take something that could potentially harm my child Mm. yeah you know I think the main thing here is well for me I think is the guidelines aren't reaching people Mm. and so you've got women taking the drug that don't know what the risks are yeah so there's a GP or um, healthcare professional education maybe that needs to happen Mm. to make sure that women are told of the risks Mm. Do we know how um, how what what the the spread is of women that aren't receiving the guidelines yes. or where? So there was a survey, um, and that's been commissioned by three charities: Epilepsy Society, Epilepsy Action, and Young Epilepsy. Um, and they took a survey of two thousand women, um, and apparently, out of four hundred and seventy-five women that were between this age bracket, childbearing age bracket, which is under fifty, between sixteen and fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, nearly 70% haven't received the new warnings. So it's quite high then. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it also sh- uh, demonstrated that one in six women weren't aware of the negative effects it may have on their unborn children. So it's quite a large proportion there. Yeah, it is. I don't know, it's one of those things you just, you don't know what you would do unless you're in that situation. Mm. You don't, you know, it's, I would imagine case by case it's going to be different for different women, isn't it? Depending mm. on how severe their epilepsy is. Yeah. Well, mm. it's obviously an ongoing story, so it'd be good in a few weeks to get Follow an update up, yeah. and see where, see where it goes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see the outcome of this public hearing today. Yeah. Um, and see see what the safety committee comes out with really on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What their recommendations are and whether there's going to be a movement towards healthcare professional education and making sure that those guidelines are reaching the public mm. correctly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Rhys, what have you got for us? Well, I wanted to get back onto the topic of femtech. Um, oh, yes. In particular, um, sort of fertility apps. Lou, just remind us about Femtech. You were the um, person that kind of introduced. Well, us it's to basically all sorts of like uh, health technology for women. That's it, really. Yeah, and it sort of stems from, you know, there was it was a study um, done earlier this year that revealed that only nine percent of digital health startups had women CEOs. Mm. So it's and it's obviously you know targeted women's health, um, but this this is regarding sort of the uh, the regulations on digital health and apps in particular, and in, in particular uh, fertility apps. And I was speaking to Dr. Victoria Jennings from the Institute of Reproductive Health, um, and they're doing a study into an app called DOT, just to see exactly how women are using it and to determine how effective the app is for pregnancy prevention. But it's interesting because there's, there's a lack of regulation in the digital health uh, sector with, yeah. for apps. And you know, there's a there's a real danger for women using these, these apps to either prevent pregnancy or to get pregnant. Um, you, you know, they, they could use the app to monitor their period and then sort of accidentally get pregnant and, you know, it's a big life-changing sort of thing that's going to happen. Well, that could happen anyway, couldn't it, with any sort of contraception? Or it could, but, yeah. But I think, that I guess the point there is that those device more standard contraceptive devices are regulated mm. yeah and the fact that there's over a thousand of apps on the market 
mm. without regulation. Just you know, there's a huge choice. But what do they say? Do they say that they're like they're not they're not going to say they're foolproof, are they? You're using a method that's known to be unreliable. So how does that? You, you can't regulate that, can you? Well, they're apps out there don't even have to do so. They're studies to you know, you know validate mm. the, the product. Uh, one in particular um, just had to show that the method was useful at inputting data and yeah. sending data out uh, to, to women uh, to show that as a concept it worked, but actually the, the findings that the women input, they didn't know if they held any you know, certain regard to how yeah. oh, accurate See, I it would was. think with these that I wouldn't expect them to be regulated because mm-hmm. I don't think it's, it's just like the rhythm method, isn't it? It, that, that's all it is, yeah, like yeah. couched in lots of data and an app. Yeah, a lot of it is so, an algorithm. <coughs> yeah. Um, you, you know, I guess it's a, for guidance at the moment. Mm. Um, I don't know how you would regulate it. I don't know how. Because if you had an app and you're saying to somebody, put your data in, and then in these days you will be fertile, and these days you mm. won't. And then if, if they, maybe they don't put their data in properly, but you can't prove that, or it's a little bit inaccurate from month to month i don't know how you i don't know how you regulate them. yeah I well i mean the fdr have taken steps to, towards regulating the you know that, that sort of sector but i mean one is being even classified as a med- medical device yeah there's one that's used by the american obs and gynae association isn't there that is it is it clue i think clue, it is clue. clues one yeah, yeah that's well that, yeah. that was one of the startups that i had sort yeah. of launched the femtech market mm. as well and um, but natural cycles as well that was a uh, I say validated, but that was um, got medical device recognition mm. in the EU. Um, but how that got was costed for the EU, um, so it just has to be made according to a manufacturer's specification. Okay. So it's like, so there's no yeah. study regarding how the women are use, using it. So I think there's a, there's a big thing around sort of, you know, how these medical devices are going to be regulated, mm. and whether they should be called me- medical devices yeah. as well, because. That's a vague terminology. Clue's mm. quite sophisticated actually as an app because it, it not only, you don't just put your dates in, if I remember rightly, mm. you put in things like how you were feeling, so it monitors quite a lot of, quite a lot of different data. aspects mm. about you and I think then it builds a picture over a, a length of time um, and it works that way. But I think really they're meant to be fertility apps aren't they, they're yeah, not actually contraceptive. Yeah, yeah so well, that was people the are using them as contraceptives because they're working out when they're not fertile. Yeah, yeah well, the natural yeah. cycle is uh, certified as a contraceptive is it? method, yeah. oh, which right. is a bit worrying. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, you know, it, it could work fine; it could be great, but it, it all takes one case to go really wrong. But then a condom's not one hundred percent, you know. No, so, no, yeah, no, so I don't know. I think all these things. We can't have a hundred percent guarantee mm-hmm. the pill, or nothing is, is it? So yeah, I mean, what uh, Victoria Jens was basically saying was, uh, you know, there needs to be a roadmap for these things. Mm. People need to sort of see how they can work, and they need to look at the science behind it. Yeah, it's, it's the problem is figuring out where it sits on the on the effectiveness scale. Mm-hmm. So well, that's it. You know, when <clears throat> when you talk to your doctor about the various contraceptives that are on offer to you, they give you an indication of, you know, what the success rate is with mm-hmm. each with each one. This is not me speaking from experience. <laughs> now, do they, I don't know. Do they recommend these? Is it something that comes up as as, a, as an option? I, don't I know. couldn't imagine. It's it. not, yeah, 
I think it, you know, obviously there is that one that is a contraceptive, yeah. not supposed to be, but I think most of them are being used in reverse by people. Yeah. Yeah, well, she, I mean, she it's does bring... It's dangerous in itself, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she, she brings up a good point, uh, Dr. Jennings, just um, the concept of contraception has been, well, she says it's been really um, hyper-medicalised but to put the control in the hands of a, of the provider and not into the hands of a woman. Just mm. saying these apps are sort of doing the reverse of that. Yeah, I suppose they are. And if, yeah, I mean, I suppose they are, but at the same time, I think that's a real kind of outlandish statement to make. I don't know, what do you think? I think, you know, most women have got a bit of control when it comes to this sort of thing. I don't think um, you need an app. Do you? No, I don't think you need an app. I think it's, I just, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a tricky one. I think you can't have 100% no. efficiency in any of these mm. products. And um, I think we're getting to that point where people want, you know, a bit like, oh, I'm going to sue if it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's heading that way rather than just saying these these products are 80% efficient or whatever, you know. And these, but I mean, a lot of them don't have that, even have that statistic. So you don't know what you're getting and where it's that. Sort of, it, mm. when the market is flooded with so, so many apps, surely there's got to be some sort of guideline yeah. to how effective they are. Mm. Yeah, but you also have to ask the question though. I mean, if you're using an app in that way, you can't really hold the app creator responsible if it doesn't work. No, I'm not, I'm not saying <laughs> it, it will be held responsible for it. No, but we're just saying about in the vein yeah. of like mm. suing and things like that, you know. I, I, I just find the aspect of regulating them problematic, I think. Yeah, well, I think that's why yeah. the FDA has taken so long as well. Well, then you get just... into the avenue of, well, you know, you'd have to regulate, if you're going to regulate something like that, then you'd have to regulate all the other sort of health apps, like the, you know, the ones that you can count your calories on and, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, some of them are actually regulated. I mean, some of them are now in the NHS apps library, aren't they? Yeah. So it'd be interesting <clears> to see if any of these type of products make it in there, because I think there is a few like that, the... Mm the sort of diet and healthy eating ones that are in there um, so I suppose it depends how, how they view them as being whatever percentage effective yeah. or not. Major OEMs who produce wearable devices that have an accompanying app will try and get that app regulated and mm. approved. Like Philips as or something. Yeah but that's different. Yeah but that's, that's also medical attached. device regulation yeah. as well because a lot of like no, Apple. I don't. I don't know if that if Fitbit would be, but Apple in particular, they would. They'd want to avoid that sort of regulatory process. Yeah. Mm. Consumer brands certainly, but medi- medical device. Yeah, OEMs. so you are talking of. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. If, you, if you're a medical device OEM and you're designing a wearable that has a uh, accompanying app, then you w- you want the app to be yeah. approved mm-hmm. because yeah, you want do. you want it to be something that a doctor can put their confidence recommend. in and recommend. Yeah. Mm. Which. With this, t- this this particular sector, I think is is a bit of a grey area. Very much. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Can't. 
Okay, it's time to take a break in our chat now because, as I promised, we're going to be hearing from Andy Calcadora. He's the Business Development Director for UK and Ireland at Philips, and I spoke to him a few weeks ago to talk about the Philips Future Health Index. This is Philips' prediction of what you can expect from healthcare in the future. So, here's the interview. Looking at this year's index for the, the 2017 edition, what were the significant findings? Right, so in terms of the Future Health Index, um, it's really, it took a temperature check on the digital integration into the health system across 19 countries. And probably the most significant um, thing that was found um, that was needed across the global health system is the requirement to transform from a reactive sick care to a more proactive health care system. And what that really achieved was it identified three main points. The focus on prevention, um, the empowering of healthcare professionals, and also the empowering of people to manage their healthcare in a more effective way. Interestingly, from the healthcare index um, for 2017, what was identified, there was a gap between healthcare professionals and general public perception on their country health system and how integrated that system is. When we actually compare that to reality, the system's actually performing better than we anticipated. The majority of markets in the system was integrated um, better than um, what general perception was. Healthcare professionals and patients believe that the UK system actually is more digitally integrated and high performing and um, healthcare um, professionals and general population um, were generally surveyed um, on what their beliefs were. What do the findings reveal about um, the attitudes of healthcare providers in terms of their attitudes towards technology and how they might be changing? Well, it's certainly more integrated as such. Um, if we look at some of the statistics, nearly half, around about 48% of healthcare professionals have seen an increase in connected care technologies used in primary care doctors in the last 12 months. Um, an example of that is patient notes, etc., and giving access to patients. If we look at some of the other um, data, more generalised around the population, nearly a third of the general population have used connected care technologies to monitor their health over the last 12 months. So we see an adoption as much as the healthcare professionals are adopting it, also the general population is. And if we look a little bit further into that data, over 50% of the general population have shared their healthcare data with healthcare professionals over the last 12 months. So we've seen a steady increase in adoption and um, some comfort around sharing that data. Mm. If we if if we take if we take a step back from that and actually look at what the healthcare system is trying to achieve, Jeremy Hunt's closing. Um, note at the Healthcare Innovation Expo pledged to increase online access to healthcare information uh, through patient-powered um, decade initiative, etc. And there's strong evidence already around that centrally and across the care system in the uh, utilisation and the benefits of digital care technology as such. Well, that's it from this week's interview, but we'll have plenty more interviews in future episodes. Now, it's back to our chat. 
what have you got? Right. Um, Reese, what's your favourite film? Hmm. Um, oh, that's a tough question. Oh. <laughs> oh, what have you done? <laughs> um, in Bruges, also. In Bruges. Um, try again. Try again? Yeah. yeah. What's your favourite film trilogy? Lord of Rings. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and your favourite character? No, that's a tough question as well. <laughs> Bolnia. It would have to be Gollum. Correct. Um, <laughs> right, well. There's a little bit of insider dealing going yeah. on here. <laughs> Did you know... Did you know that until very recently the technology that they used to create the image of Gollum was actually used to also um, help diagnose frailty in the elderly by the NHS? Uh, yes, I did actually. Okay, did well, you? that was my tenuous... Right, okay, yes, go on, tell us a bit more about this. My, then. my tenuous link was all for nothing then. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I saw him pick your stuff up off the printer before you... Uh... <laughs> I know that because of... Um, we, uh, you sent me to a talk at Manchester University. Oh yeah. And they were uh, oh. talking about using that text to monitor how elderly people fall mm. and you know, oh, put it into oh. an algorithm. So what is it? For predictive technology type of thing. So if you've ever seen the um, DVD extras of films that use CGI, you might see the actors wearing sensors <laughs> that basically are then used to recreate the image that they need to with the CGI effects. Now those sensors were used, um, and still are used, across the NHS um, to analyse uh, the gait of elderly people who um, may be at risk of um, you know, having falls or um, becoming frail. So um, that technology has been used for a while, um, but now they're moving on to kind of the next generation of that which um, doesn't borrow from Hollywood, actually borrows from NASA. Um, um, and what it is is it's technology that's used to analyse astronauts. They also use it for Olympians as well. Um, the uh, I think Ireland used it on their Olympic team at the Rio Olympics, and it's basically sensors that are attached to your legs. And they analyse the movement of your legs and your strides. And um, in in the over sixty fives, they can then send that data back to an app, which um, helps to develop new kind of uh, exercise and um, motions for elderly people to help prevent them from having falls in the future. That's interesting. Mm. Over 65 doesn't sound that old to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't now. No, it doesn't, doesn't it? But that, so what do they do? So are they are they at risk group or are they... Um... Yeah, the, there's, there's a big shift at the moment across the NHS for... Um, uh, Obviously, preventative medicine, we all know about preventative medicine, is the new um, kind of driver in healthcare systems around the world anyway. But the NHS this year are really focusing on frailty in the over 65s. Um, and Which is apt given it's its 70th birthday next year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the, because the, the big problem is that all too often it, treatment only comes after a person has had their first fall, and that's the, that's the point mm -hmm. at which they become classified as, as frail. And so what they're trying to do is classify people as frail before they have a fall so that they can work with them on exercises mm. and, and, nutritional and nutritional packages things, yeah. that all help um, to prevent these falls. But the, the wireless sensors um, are so useful because the technology that they have borrowed from NASA mm -hmm. means that the old people, the elderly people can 
go home with the sensors on and just they live normally and they, yeah. they yeah they live normally <laughs> in a doctor's office they tend not to walk yeah. in the way that they yeah. would normally walk so the doctor's able to analyze them in their in their normal routine it's interesting mm. and it's also quite good as well i mean i don't want to like you know generalize but certainly for my grandparents and a lot of their friends they hated going to the doctors you yeah. know and for them like being able to do something yeah. at home would have been really beneficial no absolutely it's I think it, there is a generational thing there of not wanting to be a pest yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah there is yeah and it's about self-confidence as well and, yeah. and you know feeling like you can um pass around the garden without having to worry about flagstones and things yeah. like that you know all, yeah. all those kind of things and are they gonna use it for like other things as well because i mean when you said gait i mean there is something actually in pregnant women where um you have your pelvis separates and it can be quite bad in some women they end up in wheelchairs and things do you think like they might be able to use it for well they're, they're using it um as i said they're already using it in the athletic world mm. so there is possibility there to use it for rehabilitation um in injuries so yeah that that side of things certainly um, i'm sure it's not just for the over 65s but um i'm thinking of it as one small step for nan um, one giant leap for mankind. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> and that all, kind of feeds in a little bit to my story, which, well, it's not actually a story, it's just something I thought we could talk about. Um, Reese and I both went to that the NHS uh, Health and Care Innovation mm-hmm. Expo, and it was really digital this year, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was, was excellent. Really, yeah. Yeah. But I did think, on the first day, there was... Um, a presentation that was given by Juliet Bauer who's the director of digital experience at NHS England and um, she recently took that job she, she hasn't been there long and she did say I've read I've read this and she said it on the day that she she was interested in taking on this role because of her own experiences with the NHS um, that she'd had and she showed a little clip a video and it was all about how the consumer and the patient we can all be booking our appointments online and we can access our prescriptions and have Skype appointments and all the things that we think of with uh, a digital NHS which is great and it's what we we think about and you know products like the the sensors that that you've just been talking about Dave they all feed into that but I did think while that's that's fantastic how many of us actually have experienced any of that because I sat there and thought, I still have to ring up my GP. Mm-hmm, yeah. I don't. I've never seen my records, um, and these are all things that she's th- she's talking about. She wants everyone to be able to view their records. They are NHS Choices is being upgraded to become NHS UK, where you can get personal information and advice for you and access your health record. And I don't know. To me, that all just seems, mm. even though we we love it and we talk about it and write about it just seems a long, it's a long way, way off it's, yeah. it's a bit like you always you do always hear the status you know 70% of GPs now offer e-prescribing yeah you know or e-booking yeah. but you also to, to be fair my GP is a, yeah I no. mean my GP is they do offer online um, you can make an appointment online mm-hmm. but it can't be for anything so say like on the day you're really ill or your kid is ill okay. you have to ring up you have to ring up and yeah. then you're like ringing yeah. and it's busy for like an hour and then you get through and you can't get an appointment because they're all booked up all of a sudden. So, you know, thinking about it, I don't know why why it hasn't moved quicker. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about it for three years nearly. 
Yeah, the I technology, it's not like the technology isn't there. Yeah. You know, it's been there for years. There's a huge irony at my, I can, this is just speaking from my personal experience, but the huge irony of my GP um, practice is that um, in order to opt in for online appointment booking, you have to Fill request a paper form <laughs> to, be, to yeah. be posted yeah. to you, and then you have to post it back. So it's, you actually end up with more paperwork and yeah. more labour. So you may as well just phone them. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what, is, is there anything that they could improve to speed it up? I don't know if it's just a case of these things take time, but it just seems to be taking a it's, long time. I don't see how you and why you couldn't just have an online appointment. At my surgery, I they asked me if I wanted online appointments. I said yes. They said they'd send me an email. I've never received the email. Mm. And then I think when you do receive, you have to go in with your passport or birth certificate to prove mm. who you are. Um, it's it, it's got to be an organisational thing, though. Yeah, yeah, it must be. Yeah, then it's just yeah. so fragmented between trusts and you know CCGs yeah. and stuff like that. It's a real miscommunication isn't yeah. between yeah. various departments and yeah. sectors as well. But how does any has anyone even you as an online doctor, not NHS, but have we got any, you, I know you I did have, once, yeah. but yeah, we tried it with something, didn't we? Was I think I, I yeah, I can't remember the name of the um, no, supplier. There's a few different um, players out there. Quite a few big ones. My, my partner has, but that was through private healthcare. Okay. It wasn't through an NHS. Mm. Well, there's now GPV have just announced yeah. they're working with the NHS. Yeah. That's interesting, actually. I think that'll be a good yeah. I mean, they're yeah. a big player yeah. in that sector, anyways. Yeah. So I think that's what the NHS needs as well. They yeah. do need other organisations coming in to help. Yeah. And people, you know, I mean, privatisation is always a, a dirty word. So mm. the NHS, but if, if they can work with partners. Yeah. What us. about the apps library? Because that again. That launched a few. Well, yeah. there was a similar thing launched a few years ago by the NHS, and then that got pulled. Yeah. And now there's a new now. apps yeah. library. But I, I wouldn't think to go on there, would you? I'd probably just do a search for an app. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably have to be directed to it by my GP, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. So maybe that's what needs to happen. Mm. I've been on it a few times, but it's still not It's not awfully full. No. It's one of the great misconceptions about digital health, though, is that the um, telehealth firms and the uh, firms that are offering Skype consultations are in some kind of competition with the NHS, and actually I think they all want to work, work as them. a supplier yeah. for yeah. the NHS. So and also, if it can take pressure off, the NHS is going to do better. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. they are they are just normal NHS doctors that are working yeah. behind absolutely. the scenes, so yeah. you know, the more, the, more of them that tie up, yeah, the better. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not about redirecting patients from NHS surgeries mm. into a private, pro, you know, a private supplier. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's about working together with the NHS. Yeah, so just something I was thinking about, and I think maybe it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next year or so, see if it improves, see if what she says does happen. Thanks for listening to our MedTalk podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Come back soon and we'll have episode four.